Mark chapter 6 is where we're heading. Mark 6. So did everyone enjoy that extra hour of sleep last night? I, I have to be honest, I was so giddy about it yesterday afternoon. I went to bed early just to totally, totally maximize the experience. So I might be a little wound up today. Sorry about that. I don't know. Mark chapter 6, verse 30 is where we are. And we're going to talk about this idea of shepherding in Scripture, jumping off from this passage. But let's go through these verses together here first. So the 12 disciples have now become apostles. They had been sent out by Jesus, as you remember, earlier in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel, in the identity and in the authority of Christ, of their master. And they now return and report back to him. The journey's over. We don't know if it was for weeks or for months, but they had gone out two by two, traveling through towns and villages and cities, doing three things, proclaiming the message of the kingdom that they had heard Christ teach, taking authority over the demonic realm and casting out evil spirits, and healing people. Those three facets made up the, uh, the focus of their mission. And now they're returning back, they're reporting to Christ, and we don't know how long they traveled. Again, I'm, I'm just speculating with this idea of maybe it was several weeks, maybe it was a few months. We don't know what they had to endure during that time through their travels. Jesus gave them some very clear instructions that if your message is not received, if you are not received, then you ought to leave that place, shake the dust from your feet, and move on. Perhaps when he was doing that, he was preparing them for persecution that would come to them during that time. So it's possible they endured some hardship during that season of ministry. It's likely that it wasn't always easy for them as they carried out this mission from Christ. Perhaps they were rejected. Perhaps they were persecuted. When they get back, if you look at the text, what does Christ say to them? Let me paraphrase. Boys... Let's go take it easy for a bit. <laughs> Let's go rest. You've had a long journey. It's been tough. You've served me well. You've fulfilled your mission. Now let's step back and let's rest for a while. He cares for his disciples as a shepherd cares for his sheep. Hold on to that thought mentally for a bit. So they get back into the boat and they escape the crowds. Well, they try to escape the crowds. That's where the text goes with this is the idea that the people, the crowd, as we've seen them be so far in Mark's gospel, the crowd is relentless. They're chasing after Christ. And now the disciples have proven that, quote unquote, they have the goods as well. They're chasing after the 12 as well, perhaps on their way back. Some of the disciples, as they were traveling back, were being followed by people who had seen the miracles that they had performed, it watched them cast out a demon, and now they're following the disciples as well. And so this crowd is growing larger, and it's relentless. They follow the boat, running along the coast, Mark tells us, running along the coast as they see Jesus and his disciples sail away into the Sea of Galilee. They keep an eye on it, and they track with it, and they follow it down the coastline. 
Mark doesn't tell us where they come to shore, but Luke tells us in his gospel account of this uh, that it's near Bethsaida. And then Mark writes these words. He says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus here shows himself to be the good shepherd to not only his disciples, but also to this group of people, this ever-growing, enormous crowd. The miracle that happens next is well known to us. I'm actually going to spend very little time on that miracle itself. It's the only miracle that is recorded by all four gospel authors. It's the only miracle that Christ does that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record. We call it the feeding of the 5,000. I'll touch on this probably briefly, but it was most likely more like the feeding of the 20,000. Scripture says 5,000 men, right, plus wives, children. So this enormous crowd and all four gospel authors record it for us. Jesus instructs his disciples, notice in Mark's account, if you're scanning through those verses, notice that he instructs his disciples to feed the crowd. You guys do it. Peter, John, James, Philip, Andrew, Nathaniel, Thaddeus, do it. Feed the crowd. Well, John gives us The Apostle John, in his gospel account, gives us a a bit more detail. John tells us that Jesus asks Philip specifically, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Don't you love it in the gospels where Jesus asks a question here and he knows the answer? He's just kind of throwing it out there, seeing how people will respond to the question. And he says to Philip here, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And can you imagine what Philip's thinking? Philip says, as he, his eyes scan this enormous crowd of 20,000 people, and there's no Walmart nearby, mind you. There's no Neiman's Market in sight. <laughs> Where shall we buy the food, Philip, for these people to eat? John tells us, again, that Jesus asked Philip this question in verse 6 of John 6. He says, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Sneaky Jesus. (laughs) He already knows what he has planned, but he wants to test Philip a little bit to see how he would respond. I might say it this way. Jesus was just playing with Philip. He wanted to see what his faith was made of. So how does Philip respond? I'm still in John 6. Took a diversion there, as you can see. Uh, But Philip responds and says, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. What's Philip saying here? He's saying, Jesus, I want to help. Look, you know me. I'm your boy, Jesus. I'm, I'm here for you, man. But come on. This isn't realistic. I mean, what you're asking me to do isn't possible. I want to serve. I'll do whatever you ask me. But what you're asking me right now is the impossible. 
The disciples don't have the ability to complete this mission that Jesus is giving them. Or do they? I thought about this really honestly. Maybe you guys, you're probably, I mean, I'm sure everyone in this room is quite a bit smarter than me. But this is honestly like the first time in studying through Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000, 20,000. First time in studying through this, getting ready for this message, that I thought about this idea because of the way Mark in his gospel lays the story out. Could they have fed the crowd? I've never thought about this before, before a few weeks ago. Could Jesus have been giving the disciples a task that was very doable for them? See, I've always thought about this in light of John's gospel because I've preached through the gospel of John before and and, and the other passages in light of, okay, he's testing Philip, right? And he knows they can't do it. It's, it's It's a mission that's not possible, but he knows what he's going to do, so it's okay because he's just going to do it. And, and of course, that's true because it's the way John records it. But the way Mark sets this up, I think, is so interesting. What have the disciples been doing right before this miracle? Traveling. Doing miracles. They've spent weeks now, maybe months, casting out demons. They spent weeks, maybe months, healing people. I don't know the specifics there, but perhaps paralyzed people were able to walk because Peter said walk. Perhaps lepers were cleansed because John looked at the leper, followed the example of the Lord, hugged him in in John's presence. Jesus, through John, cleansed the leper. These men have been doing miracles. They've been traveling from community to community, proclaiming the message of the kingdom healing the sick, driving out demons. They had seen God do the miraculous through them. They had been performing miracles without Jesus there. Jesus wasn't even around. And this is what they were doing. It's an interesting study in Scripture. Let me just really quickly take you through the whole Bible. Quickly. When God calls someone to do something that they cannot accomplish in their own strength, for those of you who just laughed, I'm going to show you how quick I can do this. <laughs> right? We have a Hebrew slave named Joseph who rules Egypt and saves millions from starvation. God doing the miraculous through him. Right? We have an 80-year-old shepherd named Moses who stands up to Pharaoh and secures the freedom of an entire nation. We have an absolute nobody named Gideon who with 300 men conquer a vast army. We have a shepherd boy who slays a warrior giant. We have an enslaved Jewish man named Daniel who rises to the highest levels of the Babylonian government. And we have a young Jewish woman named Esther who becomes queen and prevents the annihilation of her people. This is what God does. This is what he's proven himself to be able to do through people who are no more than available to him. But in every case, you have an all-powerful, sovereign God working through ordinary people to do the extraordinary. An all-powerful, sovereign God working through ordinary people to accomplish the extraordinary. Maybe the disciples could have. Just think with me here. I'm not saying this is 
right. I'm just saying it's the first time I've ever thought about it. Maybe the disciples could have given the people something to eat. They just didn't realize it. Maybe Jesus wanted to do this miracle through them, but they missed the opportunity because they didn't have the faith to see it. They couldn't visualize being able to feed this enormous crowd of people so they didn't try. Well, coming back to the text in Mark, Jesus would have given a standard Jewish blessing at this time. I can't say it in Hebrew. My master's degree is in Greek, so I'm not even going to try. But in English, Jesus most likely said something like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe who brings forth bread from heaven. And then Jesus does what many Bible scholars and theologians call his greatest miracle. Why do theologians and Bible scholars call the feeding of the 5,000 his greatest miracle? Because this is the one that most clearly reveals his identity, his deity, proving that he was indeed God in the flesh. Why? Because he creates, let me give you the theological term first, he creates ex nihilo. Jesus creates out of nothing. And you could say, well, well, no, not really, Pastor Terry. I guess you don't really know the story because there's actually two little fish and five loaves of bread. Okay, come on. If you think Jesus needed the two fish and the five loaves of bread to perform the miracle, I think maybe you're not tracking with the text. He didn't divide it and cut it up in little pieces or, you know, anything like that. He creates out of nothing. He took the gift offered from the little boy, as one of the gospel authors tell us, using what the people had. That's all true. I'm sure that's what you learned in Sunday school. Using the gift that was given to him. But he creates out of nothing. He he creates fish. He creates bread. How can he do that? Because he's the creator. Because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He proves his deity here. And so this is why we call this the greatest of his miracles. The Apostle Paul would later write about Jesus. Years after this, Paul would write to the Colossians and say, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen, church? This is who Christ is, and he proves it on this day. Jesus creates enough fish and bread to feed, again, about 20,000 people, and then there are even leftovers. I love that part. (laughs) Send out the basket. 
baskets. Let, let nothing be wasted. Pick it all up. I don't know what they were going to do with it. Take it down to the homeless shelter. I don't know. But they gathered it all together. What a great story. A great story that happens to be true. Well, there's so much that we could talk about in that passage, but I have so little time. And so what I want to do is spend the time that we have left talking about the way the word shepherd is used in the Bible. In our passage here in Mark 6, Jesus shepherds his disciples. We saw that. Boys, you've worked hard. You've done a wonderful job. Let's go away and rest. But then he shepherds the large crowd that follows after them. Let me walk you through Scripture again, and this time let's look for that image of shepherd. Because in the Old Testament, Jehovah is often referred to as a shepherd, and the people of Israel are referred to as his sheep. So just a few passages so you can see this. The Lord, Jehovah, from the Hebrew, is my shepherd. Psalm 77.20, you, speaking of God, led your people like a flock. Psalm 95.7, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Psalm 100 verse 3, know that the Lord Jehovah is God, it is he who made us and we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We also see this imagery used throughout the prophets. I can only give you a few of the verses. There are dozens and dozens of these I could put up on the screen right now. Isaiah 40, 11 says, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. Micah chapter 7, verse 14, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. What does this passage, church, teach us about our God? All of these passages referencing God as being a shepherd to his people. How does it speak to you about the way God loves you, cares for you, protects you, and guides you as his people? Because this is what a good shepherd does, isn't it? We know this. A good shepherd cares for his sheep. A good shepherd defends his sheep. A good shepherd guides his sheep. A good shepherd loves his sheep. And this is what our God does for us. There's one other way in Scripture that this word shepherd is used throughout the Bible. It's in reference to the civil and religious leaders of the people, human shepherds. And this gets just as much or more airtime in the Old Testament as the idea of God being a shepherd. Human leaders were also shepherds to the people. Priests, rabbis, let me give you some categories to think about. Anyone in leadership, but priests and rabbis, kings, princes, governors, anyone in authority would have been considered a shepherd in the Old Testament. There's one passage that's referencing the anointing of King David, where we see David going from shepherding sheep to shepherding people. Let me show it to you. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72, the psalmist says, He chose David, this is King David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. Remember, what did David do as a boy? For his father Jesse, he shepherded the sheep. Which, by the way, was like the most lowly, servantile task, job you could have during this day. 
And David is a shepherd of the sheep, right? But he goes from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. What is the psalmist saying? He's simply saying that David was a good human shepherd. He did a wonderful job. When it came to ruling the people of Israel... The psalmist is saying he did it with integrity of heart. But not all human shepherds were. Good shepherds, that is. And I think this is why Jesus has compassion on the crowd in our passage this morning. Because he sees this crowd. And of course, he knows his Old Testament history. And he knows what the prophets have written about the shepherds, the human leaders of Israel. And he looks out at them and he has compassion on them, Mark tells us, because they are sheep without a shepherd. The human shepherds of Israel had often failed miserably at caring for the people. Let me show you in the Old Testament. This is from the prophecy of Isaiah. Jesus, Jehovah, excuse me, said through Isaiah, This is what he writes, Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They're all mute dogs. They can't bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds, don't miss this, shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. Come, each one cries, let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer, and tomorrow will be like today or even far better. This is what God says through the prophet Isaiah about the leaders of the day. Jehovah's calling the human shepherds of Israel stupid, lazy, greedy drunkards. Why is he so upset? Why is God so upset at these human shepherds? The the wicked behavior of these civil and religious leaders. Remember, it's both. In Israel, it was both. It It certainly was the priests and the rabbis, but it was also those who held public office, governors, Officials, kings. Why is Jehovah so mad at them? Well, let me show you what he writes through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10, 21 says, the shepherds are senseless. God's saying they're stupid. They can't think. They're senseless. They do not inquire of the Lord. So they do not prosper and all of their flock is scattered. A little bit later in Jeremiah chapter 50, he says, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. So how does Jehovah respond to that reality? The fact that his sheep, the people of Israel, had gone astray and there was no shepherd to lead them back. How does Jehovah respond to that reality, to his people being scattered? Again, let me stick with Jeremiah for a minute. Chapter 23, this is Jehovah's response to those human leaders who were doing such a horrible job. He says, woe to them. 
Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. Later in chapter 25, sticking with this theme, he continues on and says, Weep and wail, you shepherds. Roll in the dust, you leaders of the flock, for your time to be slaughtered has come. You will fall and be shattered like fine pottery. The shepherds will have nowhere to flee. The leaders of the flock, no place to escape. Hear the cry of the shepherds, the wailing of the leaders of the flock, for the Lord is destroying their pasture. This isn't good, guys. This is God's response when leaders do not take their positions of authority seriously, when they are entrusted to care for people and they do anything but. They look out for their own interests instead of the interests of the people. Anybody think maybe we've experienced this any time in recent history? Am I just talking about the ancient past here? Okay, good. I'm glad those light bulbs are going off. I never know as a pastor, like, how explicit do I need to be? Are people picking up what I'm laying down or are they? Okay, good. I think a lot, a lot of you are. That's good. I'm going to harp on this a little bit more and then I'm going to bring you to the good news of the gospel. A little more harping. Only a little, I promise. Through the prophet Ezekiel, this to me is maybe the most explicit thing that God says to human leaders who shirk their responsibilities. This is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have brought back You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched for them or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, because, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. And this should cause every human leader to quake. I am against the shepherds. God says, when shepherds act this way, when leaders act irresponsibly, God says, I am against them and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. It's very obvious to me, church, from these passages. And again, I am literally just scraping the surface of this issue. You you can go through the major and the minor prophets in the Old Testament and you will see this over and over again. Jehovah speak this way to human leaders who are not taking their responsibility seriously. God does not take lightly the mistreatment of people by their human leaders. And these leaders are accountable to him. However, Jehovah does more than just bring judgment. 
Let's round the corner as we close here to talk about the good news of the gospel because he certainly does more than just bring judgment on the human shepherds. Here's truly the beautiful part of this story. He chases after the lost sheep himself. This is the gospel right here, preached for us in the Old Testament before Jesus was born, 400 years at least before the birth of Christ, we find the gospel being preached right here because Jehovah goes looking for the sheep himself. He goes looking for those who have been mistreated by the human shepherds. We find this in Ezekiel chapter 34. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself, listen to what God says, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. And this is exactly what happened, church. How does Jehovah do this in history? How did Jehovah come looking for his lost sheep, the eternal Son of God became a human shepherd. That's how he did it. It wasn't enough for him to just give a very poor job performance evaluation to the human shepherds. He does. But he goes beyond that and he says, now I'm going to go. And I'm going to go after the shepherds. And there's a beautiful passage in Micah chapter 5 that speaks to this. And here, I I won't read it to you, but just glance through that, where we see the coming of the eternal Son of God being prophesied that Jesus would come and that he would become a human shepherd, the true shepherd of Israel, the good shepherd, the living God becoming a human shepherd to rescue his sheep. Church, Jesus is the good shepherd. He said that his sheep will hear his voice, listen to him, and that they will follow him. So in closing, by way of application this morning, can I ask you this question? Are we listening to him? Are we listening to the voice of the good shepherd? Can I tell you, it's so easy not to. I'll confess first if that gets this ball rolling for us here. I wonder how much of the abundant life that Jesus Christ promised to give me. I wonder how much of the abundant life I have missed out on in my 50 years because I was listening to every other voice other than his. That's on me. That's on me. That's not on him. Christ said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. How many of you know that's not just a promise for the day we die? 
That's a promise that starts the day we're saved. The, say, the, the day that we first trust in Christ for salvation. He says, I've, I've, I've come that you might have life and that you might know it abundantly. And, and I wonder, church, how much I have missed out on the last 40 years of being saved of my life because I was listening to everything else, the world, the flesh, the enemy, because these can all speak very loudly. At times, as you well know, their voices can be deafening. And they often drown out the whisper of the good shepherd. The good shepherd that whispers to me and says, come this way. Follow me. I have abundant life for you if you want to come. Or you can listen to all this noise. And it's so easy for the noise to drown out his voice. Don't we want to hear his voice above the noise, church? Amen. Jesus is the good shepherd who knows us, for we are his sheep. Jesus is the one who said, enough is enough. I am going to go after them. I am going to search for them. I am going to rescue them. I am going to reconcile them. I am going to redeem them. I am going to restore them. Why? Because they are my sheep. They're my sheep. And, and the human shepherds, they've blown it. But I'm going to come. And I'm going to make all things right one more time. I'm going to save my sheep. Though they are lost, they will be found. Church, we are deeply Deeply loved by Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes. Worship team, come on up, and let's sing the transition to our time around the Lord's table, but let's pray as they come. Our God, we ask you, we ask you to come and to do something new in our hearts. Lord, this has been my prayer this week, Lord, that you would come and you would do something new in the hearts of the people here at Fellowship. And Lord, I pray that it starts with me. Do something new here, God. We, we, don't, we don't want to just play church here at Fellowship. We just don't want to come here on Sunday mornings or for many of us, throughout the week as well, Lord, just because it's our routine or it's our ritual or it's just kind of what we do. I've always done it, so I'm continuing to do it. No. God, would you do something new in our hearts? Would you, for many of us in the room, maybe it's this, would you restore the joy of our salvation? Lord, could we be moved again by the reality of the cross? That you, our God, would choose to come to the earth as a human shepherd to chase after your sheep and bring us home? That you would pay the ultimate sacrifice for us? Giving up your very life going to the cross, experiencing 
public humiliation and torture, to bear the weight of our sin, Christ, to give to us your perfect righteousness. God, would you restore the joy of that salvation? Lord, we want to live every bit of the abundant life that you came to give us. God, we want to do all of the good that you prepared for us to do from eternity past, individually and as a church. Father, do something new in our hearts today. And we pray this in your name. Amen.